It's a tale of money marks, big matches, and plenty of trash talking. It's the story of Ed Lewis, part two. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Welcome back, or welcome here for the first time, whichever it is. I'm glad you're here. You press the button, you hit download. Maybe you're just burning your 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 internet on your phone like a real weirdo, some kind of maniac with unlimited money. I wish that were me. But who is me? Who am I? What are we doing? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a wrestling promoter. I am a wrestling booker, and I am, more importantly for today, a wrestling history nerd. And I am here with the, the Stadler to my Waldorf, it's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you, man? I am capital, old chap. I am also a pro wrestling history nerd, and I fancy myself a bit of an adventurer. Thank you for downloading, and if this is your first time, it's your first time yet. And we are here continuing our series about the post-Gosh and Hackenschmidt era. It's been a wild ride so far, and it's just going to keep getting wilder. I'm really excited to be talking about what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get to that, one little disclaimer I like to give is that, you know, sometimes you hear things in a different light. Sometimes you hear a story a different way. There is the Rochamon effect. We're going to kind of address that in this podcast today because we're going to start hearing stories we've already covered from different perspectives. They get a little different, a little deeper, sometimes a little weirder, but sometimes, you know, you've done your own research or you've read this book and this person says that things happened this way or because of that. And you know what? Everything is subjective when there is very little source material. Nobody was doing shoot interviews back in these days. There was no high spots network where you could listen to somebody dish the dirt on their uh, on their youth if they could even keep it uh, keep their story straight. Because we all live in a world of lies, and pro wrestling doubles down on that like crazy. And this is where that came from, man. So if you want to like, you know, dig through the historical minutia and try to like split hairs on you know, what was valid and what wasn't. Like, I mean, we're on the Hippodrome Express traveling back in time to figure this shit out. I don't know what kind of second-hand rate time travel you're doing, but clearly you are uninformed. And we're picking up where we left off last time, talking about Ed Strangler Lewis, one of the most important men in the history of wrestling, and equally important, if not more so, was his manager, Billy Sandow. When we left off last time, we talked about how Billy Sandow had taken on the role of manager for Ed Strangler Lewis. Billy Sandow was a you know, a decent wrestler in his own right from a wrestling family, but that was a man who understood the razzle-dazzle showbiz element of wrestling like nobody before him. This is a man who saw the the the, the promoting, the the showbiz phoniness, the the crazy moments. He saw he had a vision for wrestling that really informed what the business is today more than many more than possibly anybody else. Yeah, and way more than I realized, because as we're going through this, first of all, his angles are amazing. This is at a time when everything, there is a very vague understanding that maybe the match is a performance and it's sort of a hippodrome or a work, but it's not a straight shoot all the time. But this guy has such a blank slate as far as angles and things that has been presented and he's taken it so far just what we heard in episode one man this guy is phenomenal he's like a what, what would you compare him to he is very much a i always think of him and ed lewis in the light of compared to like a like a paul Heyman and a brock lesnar yeah. a a very amazing athlete a great shoot wrestler a good worker but he needed that that showbiz I don't want to use the term phony, but somebody who could really be the flashy manager mouthpiece for him, but also very much like how Heyman was with ECW. This is a man who was just charismatic and manipulative in the best possible showbiz ways. This was a man who could very much like get whatever he wanted and 
make things happen that nobody else could make happen just through the sheer force of will and bullshit. And that was just the kind of manager that Ed Lewis needed. You know, Sandow understood the showbiz and the showmanship aspect of wrestling. His contacts and relationships at the highest level of the business ensured Lewis moving up in the rankings coast to coast. And Sandow's power of manipulation helped him get what he wanted nearly every time. The two men hit it off immediately, and their handshake deal in 1914 would last two decades. That's pretty remarkable. That's a, uh, the start of a beautiful friendship, as they say. But yes, I mean, this guy, Sandow, was a true genius and had his thumb on the pulse of how to elicit public response via money. And that was not it, because Sandow was also the kind of trainer that Lewis needed. As you might remember from last time, Lewis was a bit of an undersized uh, wrestler. He was having trouble hitting the 200-pound mark, but through Sandow's training uh, methods, he bulked up 20 pounds over the course of two years, so he was walking around the 215 mark at that point. And he also changed Lewis's finisher from that standing neck yoke to a standing headlock into a hip throw. So he would put him into a, you know, the, the, the headlock that is so famous in wrestling now, use that as a neck compression, and then use that to take the fight out of them, and then flip them over for a pin. Because in pro wrestling, especially, you know, in the olden days, they would try to play down the brutality of submissions by turning them into pinning moves. Frank Gotch would always use his toe hole to, to get somebody to turn over so their shoulders would be on the back. Uh, you know, guys like, um, you know, like, you know, Farmer Burns would use his double wrist lock to get somebody over onto their back. And that was the same with Lewis's neck yoke, where he would, you know, wear them down with that neck compression and then pin them. And now it was a standing headlock. But that is also showing his embrace of the more showmanship style of wrestling is the way I'm going to put it. Because when you're standing and you're doing that, it's more visible in the arena. But he knew, he had to have known what a phony move it can be because uh, in a legitimate grappling match, I don't think a headlock standing like that's a real good idea. What's your opinion on that one? <laughs> yeah, it's a real like, good idea if you do that to me so I can counter it, then it's great. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class one is always going to be how to how to roll out of, a, uh, out of a side headlock. You know, the side headlock... When you have somebody in it, it's like, yes, you've got their head. You know what they have? Your back. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those techniques that makes sense on a very novice level, low resolution when you see it and you don't really know what you're looking like. Okay, that guy has him by the head and he's staring him. But the truth is that's one of those techniques where you just have to be bigger, stronger, and better than the person you have it in for it to work. Like, you can do that to your little brother, but you're probably not going to be doing that to anyone that's your equal on the wrestling mat unless you really just catch them perfect. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I will do that to any child you put in front of me. But, yeah, if I was going to try that on a four-stripe white belt, I'm probably going to uh, end up on my back with uh, you know something bad happening to me when the hooks get put in. So, yeah, it was something that really typifies Ed Lewis to his core, a shooter who knew how to work and had no qualms about it. And in order to even make that finisher mean something more on the press level, Sandow created this amazing bullshit training apparatus where it was two halves of a wooden head with uh, heavy-duty like railroad springs in the middle of it. So for press demonstrations, they would pass that around and show how strong it is, and then Ed Lewis would put it in the crook of his arm and compress the two pieces together to show how strong his headlock really was. Oh, that is beautiful, and I am terrified. Imagine going home after seeing that, and you're some kid from the farm and doesn't know better. You're like, I've seen a man that can pop a melon. That is that is so carny and that is so beautiful. That's so Sando. I don't know. That's that's so Sando. Classic Sando. And we're still in that period of time now. We've kind of covered it when we talked about Pesic and and stature, where it was after Gotcha's retirement. So there was this big scramble of everybody trying to claim the the mantle of the next Gotch. Everybody was still toiling in the shadow of Frank Gotch, and because he retired without dropping the, the title, 
again, we're back to an era where every jerk and his jerk brother is going to claim to be the champion. And Charlie Cutler was one man who made such a claim to the press, saying he was the de facto champ because he hadn't lost a match in two years. And on May 10th, 1915, he put that claim on the line against Ed Strangler Lewis. They wrestled over an hour without a fall. Lewis complained that Cutler was using an illegal choke on him, and when the ref did nothing, he ended up flooring Cutler with a few punches. The match was awarded to Cutler via disqualification, but according to reports later, Lewis and Cutler continued to fight backstage until officials pulled them apart. And this is almost certainly bullshit, because very soon after this, Lewis was helping train Cutler for his big match against Joe Stetcher. But this is, again, we're going to old-time Pro Wrestling 101. We're going to have the babyface win by DQ to keep the heel strong. It's going to be a dirty move with some punches to make sure it's, it's a real big reaction from the crowd. And then why not tell reporters that they kept brawling backstage because it was so personal they had to be pulled apart. It smells like a Sandow to me. This is just, this guy's good, man. He's working all the angles. He is presenting it as a shoot. Take notes, bookers. And yeah, that, and that was the magic of this type of booking. And yeah, we saw that sort of thing, again, like with the Zabisco brothers, where you would have no problem losing so long as you don't lose-lose. You know, you fall off the, the, the stage and you hit your head or somebody gets mad and socks you in the mouth and it's a DQ. So you lose the match, but at no point do you walk away looking like you lost the match. But as we'll see with Ed Lewis, he took that to another another level because now that the press is more coast-to-coast, -coast, more communicative, that gives you more chance to spin the bullshit into gold. And that is one of these two men's absolute strength. So... Uh, moving forward, on July 5th, 1915, Lewis was ringside for Charlie Cutler's match against Joe Stetcher. So, you know, he, like I said, he was training Cutler for this match. It might have been a shoot. Who the hell knows? But it brought in a reported 15,000 fans, wow. making it one of the biggest post-Gosh retirement draws at that point. So this was a match so big that people were like catching trains to to see this goddamn thing. And that's how big that you know Stetcher was at that point. Even though once again we've discussed how he was still kind of toiling in the shadow of Gotch, but that still was made him the biggest star in wrestling in America. Yeah, and to be the third wheel in that situation is actually potentially the most ideal spot out of the three because you're going to be associated with this pre premier matchup and people are going to want to see you versus the winner. So this is this is a great setup. And speaking of Gotch, the old champ was also watching ringside, Ooh. almost certainly so he could be on hand when Cutler put over Stetcher and Stetcher could challenge him for a match. Because all evidence points to Joe Stetcher being the man Frank Gotch was willing to put over on his way out the door to permanent retirement, if anything, just so promoters and other wrestlers would leave him the hell alone. Yeah, that makes sense. And again, it smells like a sand out of me. You've got the top four guys in the world, top top two guys in the ring, the the undefeated, freshly retired goat on the ringside, and you got Strangler waiting in the wings. This is this is a uh, the recipe to to really get something cooking. Gotch, he he was rich. I mean, this man made more money than he could possibly spend in five lifetimes. He had beaten everybody in legitimate matches. He really didn't have a lot of things on his plate that looked good. But every time he would pick up the paper, somebody was calling him out. Every time you know he would show up at an event, somebody was calling him out. Promoters were knocking on his door, trying to lure him out of retirement left and right. So it did make sense to pick somebody to be the person he would put over, that he would make the next star out of. And you know, Stetcher was his type of grappler. He was a high-paced you know, high action, athletic, catch wrestling type of guy, you know, another another farm boy, you know, just just oh, his type of guy. Yep. So you could tell that that was somebody he was willing to do business with just to get it out of the way so he could go do his thing. And yes, Stetcher was the man on top while Lewis was doing endless loops with Dr. Roller, including one that the March 18th Wheeling Intelligencer called the greatest match of the wrestling season almost like the two men had practiced it dozens if not hundreds of times. Would this be one of the first examples of like 
the uh, the equivalent of like a five star match in the press. Maybe I, I I was but I feel like since it's so centralized and so localized, it doesn't have the same meaning. Yeah. Because what Roller and Lewis did is what many other wrestlers did, where you know the two of them would travel nonstop doing the same match in different towns. Totally. Because there was no television, there wasn't like traveling sports writers. You could do the same thing again and again and again until it's polished like like a diamond. But, you know, the rubes in, uh, in Goofus Town, Utah, have no clue. They think it's a legitimate shoot or, or, or not that they've never seen before. You know, because this is removed from the days of, you know, Miller and Bauer, you know, exposing the business by doing the same match again and again totally. and again. So there is some... You know the the hippodromery. We'll make up a word right yes, there. Is yes, yes. Is a little softer because wrestling wasn't a hundred percent seen on the up and up, so it was never as scandalous as it was back in those you know in the before yeah. times. But it's still a big difference between doing an endless loop with an old timer and being the guy handpicked to uh, you know beat Gotch and be the top guy. Period. They would still have their uh, their big match before anything could happen because the Gotch negotiations did come down to money. You know, if Gotch was going to come out and do this thing, he wanted to get paid. But Stetcher also wanted to get paid. So there really was a lot of bickering about money, which is what delayed things and delayed things and delayed things. And on October 20th, 1915, Lewis and Stetcher had their first meeting, which we covered in our episode about Stetcher. And for two hours during this match, Lewis played defense in a boring as fuck match was Stetcher attacking nonstop. Stetcher was technical, fast and brilliant on the offense. Lewis was more strategic with great balance and stamina and not like hard, fast paced athletic stamina per se, but the ability to relax in the ring and make the other guy wear himself out, which sometimes can work even better. Oh yeah. It's, it's just having a, a mastery and a, a Zen about it and being calm because you are truly in your element and you are that, comfortable and that's what played out in evansville indiana much to the chagrin of the paying audience lewis was able to counter all the takedowns all the attacks and anytime he reversed stetcher into a takedown of his own he'd pop back up to avoid the grappling skills of stetcher he didn't want to engage on the mat with him he played defense it was very you know ken shamrock versus hoist gracie and ufc5 if you yeah. will something where you had a guy who was attacking and another guy who was just like, I'm not going to let you take me to where you want to be. And it makes sense strategy-wise, but it is not fun to watch in the goddamn least. So after you know about two hours or so, Stetcher rushed Lewis and knocked him over the ropes into the first row. And this was the really the first exciting moment of the match. Lewis hit his head on a chair and claimed he couldn't continue. The ref awarded the fall to Stetcher. Between falls, they go back to their dressing room, and the doctors checked out Lewis and stated that he seemed fine, despite what Lewis and Sandow claimed. He wouldn't return for the second fall, so Stetcher won by default. The audience went apeshit to the point of near riot. The mayor, who was in attendance, gave a speech about the match not being on the square and how there will be no more wrestling in his city until wrestling was legitimate and had the police confiscate the box office cash, promising to donate it to charity. The cops claimed they were tipped off that it was a fake wrestling match. Dun, dun, dun! They just got... Boloed and gangster just jacked. That's pretty incredible that the that the uh, mayor just saw the opportunity. Okay, this is some crap. We're taking over right now. And we're taking their money. Yeah. And Lewis was taken to the hospital where he reportedly was just fine. The mayor gave the promoter enough money back to cover his expenses. Lewis and Stetcher weren't paid, but they cleaned up with the bets because most of the bets weren't on whether Lewis would win, but how long he would last before losing. So the long, boring match beat the spread by a huge margin. So all the betting wasn't, can he win or will he win? Everybody just assumed that Stetcher was going to win, but they expected it to be, you know, two straight falls in an hour. So by dragging a single fallout for hours upon end, that beats the spread. So the, the, the payouts on the betting were absolutely huge. 
And I bet Sandow was in the car, in the back of, like, the, you know, Cruella DeVille Rolls Royce, just laughing. Or I guess this is before those, but he had a lot of money, so it was, like, horse and carriage. But that is brilliant. They pulled, like, a reverse snatch. Where they just, they, they, they double-fixed the fight and, and cooked the books on the bookies. And even though, I wonder this, though. Would the, would the mayor and the police have rushed in and tried to take the money if, if it had not ended in that? sort of like riot finish oh who the hell knows because you know I, like I, I feel like they were probably looking for an excuse because yeah. all, all mayors and all major cities were looking for a reason to clamp down on dirty wrestling after how they perceived Hackenschmidt and Gotch 2 to be so I feel like that was just the excuse they were waiting for for sure and you would think that a disaster like this would ruin Ed Lewis's reputation, but Sandow spun it into gold, claiming that Stetcher couldn't beat Lewis and how Lewis could defend all of Stetcher's attacks. And from most of the articles I've read, if the writer wasn't on hand to see the shit show, they clearly bought into Sandow's vision of Lewis being the brightest star just behind Stetcher. For now. Dude, this guy, I just, we keep going back to this, and you guys, you nerds don't know this, but like, it, it, in between episodes, the two of us have just been marking out for our just true appreciation at the utter, complete proficiency of scumbaggery of of the the hippodroming here. Oh, this yeah. is some high level carny shit, man. Yeah, that's exactly because you know we you know in previous episodes back in the eighteen hundreds we talked about the carnival shows and the tricks they pulled and. Sandow was just the, the the evolution of that. He was the guy to take it to the next level where it wasn't in a traveling tent. It was going theater and arena to theater and arena. But it was the same carny heart that beat in his chest. Yes, the beats in ours. And I, I, I bow in appreciation of the, the master. So yeah, so Sandow was a master of spinning stories into golden bullshit, and by the time Lewis showed up for the Manhattan Opera House tournament, his reputation was that of a top wrestler in the game, and he showed up to that tournament, uh, the Samuel Rackman produced, promoted, and booked tournament. We have an entire episode about it a few, uh, few back, but pretty much a man tried to put together a epic Greco-Roman tournament at the Manhattan Opera House that was going to run for months, had all the international stars that had fled from uh, their native countries as World War I was starting to break out, and thinking that Greco-Roman was somehow going to be the hot draw, and it was going to you know, find a replacement for Frank Gotch, preferably in the form of Alexander Aberg, but it kind of fizzled out, so we tried it again, bringing on infamous con man and, and promoter Jack Curley, adding in catch wrestling, creating the character of the masked Marvel to, to save the box office. So it was a wild, a wild time. I do recommend going back and listening to that if you haven't already. And because it was an international tournament, for some reason, Rockman billed Ed Lewis as from Germany. Yes, he was of German stock. Yes, he spoke German, but he just kind of made him German by default to fit the gimmick of the show. But whatever. He went in there because they were doing catch wrestling as well as the Greco-Roman. It was very weirdly structured. And he won five straight matches before a draw against Vladek Zabisco. And he went 21-1 and 15 overall with four draws against Vladek Zabisco. And on December 20th, 1915, he even beat the masked Marvel with a headlock into a wrist lock and a pin at 11.50, with the crowd not even registering it for a moment because it was so shocking, then losing their minds for Lewis. According to the December 21st New York Evening World, managers for both wrestlers immediately started working on a rematch because it was so goddamn amazing for that audience because the mass marvel was the savior of the tournament ed lewis was one of the most exciting wrestlers because most of the catch wrestlers from the midwest were not involved because it was mostly greco-roman rules there was promoter wars it was a whole goddamn thing so he was one of the stars of the tournament but the rules were not made for him and he even had a greco-roman rules match against alexander aber who lasted 50 minutes against the much bigger Estonian. Lewis claimed Aberg wasn't human and was the strongest wrestler on earth. Some publications, however, like the New York Tribune, said that Lewis was controlling the action for much of the match. And 
that's a style clash I don't even I don't even be, can't even begin to uh, to appreciate because if you are a catch wrestler and you go into Greco Roman rules, ninety percent of your tools are now out the window. Yeah, and the other ten percent are predicated on having the superior size and strength at the point of leverage, which you clearly do not hear, my newly crowned German chap. Yeah, he, he was a man who, even though he was probably around 210 at this point, he was up against a giant Estonian, you know, he was he was kind of built in the same uh, factory, if you will, as a Hackenschmidt and Lurich. So this is a big man, strong man, who had been doing Greco-Roman his whole life, up against a 210-pounder who was a catch-wrestling specialist. So for him to last 50 minutes is a victory in its own sense. Yeah, absolutely, and I I wonder how much of that was... A, they say it was billed as a legitimate Greco match, but I wonder if that was, because 50 minutes is a long time to go with a high-level Greco practitioner who has a size advantage on you. Yeah, well, it's also, we as we just discussed, Ed Lewis was the type of wrestler to play defensive wrestling uh, very, uh, very, very, very often in a situation like that. So I could see him just trying to stall out Aberg and get him frustrated, and it just didn't uh, didn't happen. And then on January 15th, 1916, he beat Roller under catch rules in the tournament. And the next day, Billy Sandow told the press that Lewis was now the catch wrestling champ because of this win for reasons. Because of course he is. Yes, because Sandow said so, man. That makes it so in this world. He has the Hippodrome pen of the people in, 20, in 1916. It's, it's, yeah, because Sandow also claimed that Lewis's match versus Stetcher was a draw because it was stopped after Stetcher broke Lewis's fingers to escape a hold that he was so close to, uh, to tapping out to. Because, again, this is pre-television. This is pre-internet. And if you're a good talker and you're a good spitter of tales, well, your, your story becomes the def default truth because who else is telling the tale? Uh, it made, when I was reading about that, it made me think about many years ago, I was at a local... MMA event, and I ran into a, a a famous, at the time, MMA fighter's coach, and he was like, oh yeah, my guy had, uh, you know, a big fight down in Brazil against, you know, against a famous, uh, you know, Brazilian champ who was a UFC champ, and he, uh, he told me this tale of, oh yeah, he like fought for like half an hour, and it ended with like broken ribs and like all these injuries, but then he got caught with a heel hook, so he lost, but who, who was the real loser in that fight? Wow, what a story. What a fight. I can't believe I, I couldn't see this. Well, a couple of years later, when you could look these things up on the internet, turned out it was like a 30-second loss to a heel hook. But because nobody thought the truth would ever come out, that story became uh, the one to tell. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, so ima yeah, imagine how far you could push it if you didn't have the checks and balances of camera phones and internet machines and people that can film you everywhere you go. If there's no film to tell the tale, the, the, the ability to take any situation and spin it into a gold positive is just un unmatched. These guys are turning everything that happens into gold. And for years, Sandow and Lewis claimed victory in the catch wrestling tournament, part of the Opera House affair, even though the real tournament was exclusively Greco-Roman and won by Aberg. But once again, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, especially if you can use that to move tickets and get bookings. So Rockman wanted to take Lewis on an American tour with Aberg. They were the two biggest you know, kind of babyface stars in this tournament, but Lewis wanted more money, so that didn't happen. Instead, they stayed on the East Coast with an agreement to rematch against Stetcher. But let's take a moment to talk about one of our favorite people, Jack Curley. Oh, yeah. Jack Curley was one of the most important boxing and wrestling promoters of the early 1900s. He's the one who found the great white hope Jack Johnson, having put together the Johnson versus Jess Willard fight in Havana on April 5th, 1915. But he was mostly pushed out of boxing because he couldn't offer the same guarantees as rival Tex Rickard and mostly promoted wrestling after that, he's also well known for being the promoter of the second Gotch Hackenschmidt match and stiffing Hackenschmidt on almost all of the money, saying, what are you going to do about it now that you've gone back across the Atlantic? Yeah, he he goes down in our 
retrospective history as far as we've established so far. That's probably the shadiest promoter in the history of pro wrestling all time ever. Easily. And that's yeah. impressive in its own way, man. Uh, Curly had booked Stetcher versus Vladek Zabisco for Madison Square Garden during the 1915 tournament, trying to uh, take some of the attention away because this was during the first wave of the tournament where he wasn't involved. Saw some asshole running in his town, decided to run uh, you know, run the same night in the same town to try to pull some tickets away in a typical wrestling promoter move. But this fell apart after the disaster of the Aberg-Zabisco match that ended with Zabisco being thrown from the ring and claiming to be too hurt to continue as the crowd booed him mercilessly, calling him quitter and a fake. So, definitely took the shine off of himself with that little move. And after some backroom dealings with Rockman and Curly, the match was changed to Stetcher versus the Masked Marvel. So Sandow took to the press immediately, outraged that Lewis wasn't given the match and how Lewis was the real champ. So on January 27, 1916, Stetcher beats the Mass Marvel in two straight falls with his scissor hold, showing that a good mask and a good gimmick doesn't necessarily mean victory on the mat. Yes, but it does mean victory in the box office, as it was well established. One of my favorite elements of the entire 1915 Greco tournament was that what it did was the exact opposite it intended. It was to reestablish Greco as the dominant true competition, and it established the work, and it established the masked pro wrestling superstar. Yeah, it was, it was an attempt to reestablish legitimate sports wrestling, and it had to resort to the silliest of bullshit in order to financially save the day, and that's showbiz, baby. And it got more over than anything else in the tournament, so shout out to the mass pro wrestlers out there that fed because this man walked. And... After two, like I said, he beat the Mass Marvel in two straight falls, full-time using his scissor hold to get the pin, and Stetcher became the toast of the town in a huge New York City match, beating the star of the tournament and cementing Curly as the dominant wrestling promoter in the area, which is the more important thing, big picture. So, Rockman, with now managing Aberg, they challenged Stetcher and... They really were trying to get another big match, but it was only going to be under Greco-Roman rules. But at this point, Stetcher and Curly didn't need Aberg and Rockman, and Greco-Roman wrestling more or less died as a form of wrestling entertainment in the United States. Well, he certainly finished the job, didn't he? He came into the tournament to save it, and Curly pulled a Curly, and now it, Greco is dead. The wrestling world was watching and waiting for Gotch versus Stetcher to materialize, Lewis and Sandow, though, continued to claim the real championship, even after Aber got a judge to order them to stop, citing his win over Lewis in the tournament as evidence for that fact. Stetcher and Lewis, they, they did... <laughs> I'm sorry, man. That, is, no. that popped me for real. That was awesome. He, he really just, he's like, whatever. It's, boy, it's better press, darling. Keep it going. Yeah, so yeah, they were, they were bullshitting this fake t t uh, you know, title to the point where uh, where Aberg went to fucking court to tell them to shut up. And they still didn't. That's the best part. What you gonna do about it, judge? That's amazing. So, Stetcher and Lewis, because once again, the gotch negotiations were ongoing, so Stetcher and Lewis signed for a rematch on the 4th of July, 1916, wrestling to a finish in Omaha. Starting at 4 p.m., it lasted 4 hours, 51 minutes, and was exciting as watching paint dry. When the sun went down, the promoter wanted the match to stop and resume the next day. Stetcher agreed, but Sandow and Lewis pointed out that contractually it had to continue. So cars were rolled to ringside so the headlights could illuminate the ring, and the crowd hated it. They started throwing cushions, which hit the police who were on hand, and the match was stopped. That is so brilliant, because that was just them getting out of having to come back and doing it tomorrow. Yeah, it was, once again, it was the, I, I feel like this was 100% of work. It was them doing a stall match for the sake of betting. Uh, the, the promoter wanted them to come back and finish it up for real, and they were like, sorry, I, uh, I, I'm contractually obligated to one match, buddy. We're not even going to fucking consider this. And they, you know, they, they just decided to pull cars up to the ring because they didn't have, you know, stadium lights in these days to illuminate the, uh, the ring so they could keep going after the sun went down. And at this point, you have to imagine, people are so 
they're not emotionally invested, but they paid their fucking ticket and they've been sitting for four fucking hours. It's let me just see a finish to this goddamn thing so I can go home and go to sleep. Totally. Like, it's like watching your own team go into extra, extra, extra overtime. You're like, I don't care if we lose, just finish the game. It's like, I have to work in five hours. <laughs> exactly. And it's, and it's back in, in 1916. It's like, I have to go to a factory and work 27 straight hours, and then we'll lose a hand to a machine, and then only then do I get a lunch break. Exactly, and I and I bet all my all my week's lunch money on this on this match. So I need to see the finish. And even after it was stopped, after the the cushion started raining down uh, from the from the audience, and the promoter he wanted to keep it going and continuing the next day, but nobody else did. So it was declared a draw. The crowd did not give a shit. They didn't want to come back. The wrestlers didn't want to come back. And the purse of $5,000 was held up until July 7th when Sandow filed a lawsuit over it. Everyone hated the match, but Stetcher was the hometown hero and was trying to be aggressive throughout the match, so he didn't get any stink on him. But Lewis officially became a heel in the Midwest. Awesome. And thousands of dollars were lost in bets on Stetcher winning because, keep in mind, this was dragging out a match to a terrible draw in order to make a fortune in bets because it was booked to a finish. So people were betting to win, to lose, not on the match going, you know, you know, being so dragged out that it just didn't have a conclusive ending, in which case the house wins. Isn't it funny how that always seems to happen? And... <laughs> Once outside of Omaha, Sandow was able to spin this into a brutal match that Stetcher barely survived and would have lost if it went even 10 minutes longer, claiming Stetcher was hospitalized, and Lewis, he went out dancing. He claimed the accusations of working a match were from bitter Omaha Stetcher fans who couldn't believe that someone could hang with their champion. Lewis backed these claims in the press with articles like Strangler Lewis Tells of Great Bout with Stetcher in the Waterloo Evening Courier on December 30th, making claims like, quote, Joe was just a big country boy, and when I wrestled him five hours, I was half inclined to be sorry for him. He was so disappointed over his failure to beat me. Oof. When we started, I kidded him. Joe, I asked, don't you think that either one of us could give Gotcha merry old time? I would, he drawled, but you wouldn't. When we had been wrestling almost five hours and Joe was blowing and cross-eyed from exhaustion, I addressed him again. Joe, I asked, do you think now that I would give Gotcha run for his money? Yes, he drawled. Didn't <laughs> he didn't have enough gumption left to give me a saucy reply. <laughs> <laughs> that is, oh, real life. That is well done, sir. And if you think that's good, later in the interview... Quote, he had brought his girl to the arena and she had a ringside seat. No doubt on the way to the arena, he told her that he would beat me in half an hour or an hour and the rest of the afternoon he would spend buying her popcorn and soda water. Felt sorry for that girl. I truly feel sorry for the girl. Really and truly sorry. She looked so forlorn and dejected as the hours passed and her Joe didn't pin me as he promised he would. Seeing how disappointed the girl looked and while in the heat of battle, I became a little personal, perhaps. And now that I think of it, I'm sorry, but I couldn't resist the temptation to kid Joe. Your poor girl is very disappointed, Joe, I said. She thought you were a champion. I'm sorry to beat you and take her away from you. Damn, that is just... He is dunking on this man. These guys are just spin masters, brother. Yeah, the publicity clearly worked because this article appeared above the announcement of Stetcher's next match against Bill Hogaf. So yeah, he's just out there like, like, man, you couldn't beat me. What a chump you are. You admitted that I'm the fucking man. And your girl, man, your girl looked fucking bummed out because you couldn't beat me. Yeah, your girl looked sad because you had nothing for me. You got served, bitch. I mean, that's... Like, in 1915, 1916, like, I feel like this is almost dueling talk. Like, this is, like, this is, this is some shit that somebody gets stabbed over. Oh, yeah, he got dunked on so savagely. This would be, like, in these days, this would be, like, a viral tweet if he, this would go viral if he cut this promo on him today, yeah. which it kind of did if they're posting it in quotes on the headline in the newspaper over his opponent's matches that he's not even in. I'd say that's like the 1900 equivalent of going uh, viral. Oh, yeah. No, this is like the sort of back and forth uh, dissing that gets like West Coast rapper shot in the 90s. Yeah, this is good shit, man. 
So, but moving forward, uh, after a match against Irish wrestler Pat Connolly in Billings, Montana, he was treated for an injured ankle by a female doctor named Ada Scott Morton, who checked out the ankle and treated it at her hospital in San Francisco. The two became romantically entangled, despite Ada being married to another man at the time. Oopsie doodles. He cut that same promo on her man, too. At about the same time, Joe Stetcher took on John Olin. Olin was a Finnish wrestler who won a silver medal in the 1912 Olympics, and this was in Springfield, Massachusetts. Olin was just happy to be there and to take a good payday and job to Joe Stetcher. But things went wrong when another wrestler did the translating and thought it would be funny as hell to tell Olin that he was supposed to get squashed in one minute. The Finn, who felt incredibly disrespected, went out and shot on Stetcher. After two hours, Olin wanted out, but the other Finnish wrestler, Hjalmar Lunden, lied about angry Finnish gamblers in the crowd who would shoot him over it. <laughs> this guy, what a great friend this guy has. This, honestly, this is the shit I would do to you. Oh, yeah, I know. After four and a half hours, things got rough, and Stetcher walked off, claiming an injured shoulder. Olin was declared the winner, but didn't claim the title, only caring about the bigger payday. So technically, he beat the champ by forfeit, but he was like, he didn't even think like, oh, I'm the champ now. He's just like, fuck yeah, more money. So Joe continued to claim and be recognized as the champ, and it wasn't until 1917 that a promoter jumped on the idea of Olin being the legitimate champion. Also around this time, Lewis was having a few great matches with Ad Santel, beating him on December 12, 1916, and then a two-hour draw on January 2, 1917. Stetcher was to get the winner, but it was a draw, so Stetcher picked Santel and crushed him in two straight falls. Of course it was. That is perfect booking. They just stick it to the man at every turn. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna try to pop box office, pick the guy you can actually murder, and you don't have like weird like you know media heat with. And that match drew twelve thousand ticket buyers, which is enormous. But then Stetcher had to take some time to rehab his shoulder or to recover from a nervous breakdown, depending on which version of the story you believe. So Lewis and Stetcher were overlapping their tours in almost every city, both wrestling matches in L.A. at the same time, both men claiming to be the best. While in L.A., though, Lewis appeared as a stuntman or an extra in Douglas Fairbanks' movie Reaching for the Moon, so we got to make his big screen debut there. And Lewis was wrestling across the country, big matches and big wins in Texas, Virginia, Ohio. Meanwhile, Stetcher finally met his match and lost his title to Earl Caddick on April 4th, 1917 in Omaha each man winning a fall, then Stetcher refusing to come out for the third fall. For details on that, listen to our episodes about Joe Stetcher. So you're kind of seeing two guys who are the, the height of, of wrestling fame for the era, but one is a sturdy man who, you know, is, is seen as, you know, getting stronger every single day. And then you have a guy like Stetcher who seems to be just getting spread too thin, having injuries, having mental health problems. Not a real great overlap as both men are trying to claim the top spot and being Gotch's heir, if not getting the outright match with Gotch. Yeah, and it's it adds a new layer to the mental illness stuff because they were trolling him hard, man. Oh, big time. And I feel like that was a big part of why you would have a situation where even though they clearly were working, as soon as he started kind of talking that much shit, then it became personal because oh, yeah. that's what, uh, you know, sometimes mental illness uh, does to you where you'll talk a lot of shit having fun, but when it comes back to you, it's no longer fun. Yeah, and definitely Sandow picked up on that and exploited it as he has every other thing that we have discussed. And after that match where, uh, you know, after the Caddock match, after Caddock became the champion, and Stetcher not coming out for the third, there are various stories with him being injured, sick, exhausted, having a mental health crisis, or even being told to stay out by his manager who was double-crossing him because he knew his contract was coming up and he wouldn't be his manager anymore and wanted to leave him title-free on the way out. Lots of intrigue, lots of possibilities. Nobody knows for sure because they are all dead. It also might have even been a work to keep Stetcher intact while taking time off to recover from his health issues and give Caddock the title for safekeeping. 
Stetcher had a few small matches later in the year before beating Marin Plastina on September 3rd, 1917, soon after his brother Tony took over as Joe's sole manager, leading kind of the, the rumoring about why his old manager might have stuck it to him to keep the title off of him. But either way, Stetcher is now no longer the uh, champ, whether it was a work to you know get some time off or it was a legitimate shoot loss. Either way, there's now a little uh, a little less shine on his uh, on his image. Yes, but it's brought him back in the fold with family. And nothing tells you you're on the downhill decline of your career than when you get dumped by the most shady promoter in the game and you start working with your brother. Yeah, the the brother angle, you know, family is supposed to always have your back. Family is always supposed to have your best interests. But anybody who's ever won the lottery will tell you differently. <laughs> yes, and this is pro wrestling, darling. I don't think the family dynamics work quite the same. Yeah, because you know, a lot of times your family just, if you're your less talented brother, will just see you as the cash cow. It's like, uh, what was the character's name? Lou in, uh, in Rocky, where it was yeah. just like, hey, I'm broke, you have money. Let me be somebody in your corner so I can leech off of you. Or 90% of the people who ever worked with Tyson. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a real problem when you come from an impoverished community and you, like, are sort of the one person that made it. Where's the line of... Wherever the line actually is of responsibility you have to your people, you got a lot of hangers-on that drag that line back and want, and want a piece of that. But either way, the title was off of Stetcher. Stetcher was kind of fading back a little bit. And an interesting thing happened because earlier in the year, a few promoters convinced John Olin to step forward and claim the championship himself. And his first defense was against Ed Strangler Lewis with Frank Gotch as referee, which again kind of makes me think that Gotch was leaning a little bit more towards Lewis because he respected Lewis as, yeah. a, as a legit shooter. That was more important than you know, a lot of than, than it would have been with a lot of other people, but he was also a shooter that knew how to work, so I feel like they had a lot in common, and they went out there for uh, that special match for the new Olin lineage title, and Olin hurt his shoulder and couldn't continue after 37 minutes, giving Lewis the win and the, quote, title. Gotch praised Lewis as the best wrestler in the world. Of course he would. You always put over put over the uh, the, the younger guy in every uh, every town, um, and this didn't get as much attention from the press as maybe it should have, but it was a big moment for Lewis's career. Gotch's praise was high indeed, but he had named several men his de facto heirs and soon would be hospitalized with a kidney failure that killed him before the year came to an end. 2,000 people attended the funeral, and the in-ring passing of the torch became an impossibility. Gotch was now out of the picture, and nobody now would be known as the man who beat Frank Gotch. So this goal that everybody had been fighting for, everybody had been politicking for, it was now off the table forever, and they were now forced to uh, kind of stand on their own merits, if you will. Yes, although I would, I would, I would maybe argue a little bit that to some degree the torch was passed. He was there as a special guest referee when the new champion was crowned between the two top contenders. And in that way, he was in the ring at the time when the torch was passed, and and it's better than nothing. Yeah, it's something though. I feel like we're trying to we're we're trying to add a storyline with importance after the fact. Yeah. Because Gotch would referee any match that paid him properly. He would say nice things about any wrestler who won the match he was refereeing. It just so happened this had like a weird importance that didn't make a lot didn't matter a whole lot until down the road. But you know. In the myth-making of pro wrestling, yes, it's a huge beat. It's a huge moment. It's it's where movie one ends, yeah. you know. So it, it does make a lot of sense in hindsight, but at the moment, it wasn't quite as important as we try to make it out to be. It reminds me a lot of, like, when you watch, like, old Pride uh, MMA and you hear Mauro Ranello trying to turn things into, a, like, a pro wrestling storyline, and then Rude will be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> It's like, gosh darn it, we're storytelling here, you bastard. Yeah, so they were they were doing it well, but you know they're gonna. At least we got to have the opportunity to have them in there with the champ when the when the passing of the torch happened. But yeah, that is a a small small consolation compared to what could have been. 
Meanwhile, back in New York, Jack Curley had an assistant named Jack Cairns working for him, running errands, doing the bitch work, whatever. And in 1917, he sent Kearns to San Francisco to manage a wrestler named Tony Ursa. Ad Santel, whose reputation had been ruined by getting steamrolled by Stetcher, offered to do a friendly training session with Ursa in front of the press, then shot on him in front of the sports writers and wrecked Ursa's reputation to boost his own. Wrestling, everybody. <laughs> yes, I feel like I feel like. Meanwhile, in New York, Jack Curley dot 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 should be the name of some TV show or some, you know, like detective noir Sunday comic. So Kieran's left Oakland with that job of managing a wrestler in shambles and ended up with a down on his luck young boxer named Jack Dempsey and began managing his career. But that April, Kearns returned and found Money Mark. Charlie Newman to bankroll a Lewis versus Vladed Zabisco match in San Francisco, talking him into doing 3K in guarantees for both men, plus expenses, which is a huge amount of money for those days. Dude, Hollywood, darling. Way to find a money mark. Is this, is this one of our first examples of just an overt money mark? It, it, it really is, because I was really excited when I heard about this story and looked some things up. Because, yeah, this guy, Charlie Newman, he was a saloon operator. He was just a guy who had successful businesses, who was a fan, who got suckered into promoting a... Um, a wrestling match thinking he had just the showbiz delusions of grandeur and got suckered into ponying up huge paydays like a real asshole and there is just something so beautiful about fleecing a money mark uh it, what's a money mark for the people who don't know a money mark is somebody who basically buys their way in because they have the money to circumvent putting in the work or gaining the influence or the, the position in the business organically and through the merit of their labor and their contribution to the art. They basically pay to play. It's, it's something you see to this day. In fact, more today than even back in those days. Yeah. We'll see somebody who gets an idea of running a wrestling show and they get a venue and they bring in like five to ten thousand dollars worth of star names to uh to to be you know do this giant show and in their heads they see a packed arena because they don't understand how it actually works and how you have to organically grow a show and how you have to be responsible with your money and next thing you know they are either wiped out or they sneak out the back during the main event which is a dream of mine to do someday Someday, yes, right. Wink, wink, someday. But yeah, the key you can tell a Money Mark show is, is the budget for the show more than the amount they made on tickets? Because if, if they way overshot the mark, you can tell the guy's got plenty of money and very little know-how. Lewis and Sandow arrived in the Bay Area for a week of, quote, local training before the match. Zabisco and Curly did the same. Cairns left town on business, and Newman started getting cold feet. He wasn't an expert promoter. He was a saloon owner and with delusions of, of bullshit dancing through his head. He started getting cold feet, but he had Curly and Sandow laying it on thick at every Oof. turn, and he had already dished out plenty of cash already, and he wanted to recoup. So, I mean, I can understand being like, oh, I think I got hustled and I'm in too deep. But you have Jack Curley and Billy Sandow just up your ass at every turn, talking you, talk, you know, bl gassing you up, beating you up, telling you if you want to get your money back, you're going to need to put on this show, telling you it's going to be a huge success, even in the back, even though in the back of your brain you know it's not. So what a fucking uh, ride to be taken on as a money mark in San Francisco. Dude, but at least you got taken on a ride by the best, man. You got the... Angel in one ear, Sandow, you got the curly devil in the other ear. You are getting worked at the highest level that a mark has ever been worked, sir. And it seemed like everybody knew what was in store. According to the June 3rd Portland Daily Oregonian, Charlie Newman thinks he is going to coin money with a wrestling match for the Civic Auditorium, but in this writer's opinion, interest in the game is more or less a dead issue. After describing the Stetcher-Santel match, he continued, quote, this coming tussle doesn't look to do anywhere near as well. In the first place, there is not the interest. In the second place, we are facing the war and all the taxes that it will bring. People are husbanding their coin as the four-round fight promoters and the baseball folks can testify. I'm willing to make the prediction that Messrs. Newman and Foley are going to be bitterly disappointed, and when they are finished, the wrestling game will be hung up on the wall so far as this city is concerned. 
One chap who ought to know what he is talking about remarked that a square wrestling match was not interesting. Hence the efforts on the part of so many of the grapplers to Hippodrome. So this guy, like even the press is going, this dipshit's out of his fucking league. He's going to get taken to the cleaners and wrestling's just going to be dead in the city because of it. That's pretty hilarious. Yeah, imagine being this dipshit and opening up the sports page to read that and then just being like, I've already spent a fortune and Jack Curley's like won't shut up, so I guess I'm uh, I'm stuck doing this. <laughs> and that's how you make this show. <laughs> yep. <laughs> On the night of June 6, 1917, the box office was counted for the whopping $936 in tickets sold, and Newman lost his goddamn mind and canceled the show and said Cairns needed to help cover the bills. Kern said that Newman was 100% responsible for the money contractually, and by 9.30 the crowd was getting ready to tear the place apart, and the police were brought in. <laughs> well, luckily it was only $936 worth of a crowd that they had to deal with. <laughs> so a compromise was made, with each wrestler making about half the original guarantee. They finally started the match just before 11 p.m. when it was supposed to start at 9, and it went to the two-hour time limit with the only fall going to Zabisco practically by accident. Lewis had Vladek in a body lock, and Zabisco was holding the ropes. The ref told him to let go of the ropes, and both men fell backwards with the Polish wrestler on top, which was ruled a flying fall by the referee, much to everyone's confusion. Zabisco was ruled the winner off of that one fall, despite Lewis looking like the better wrestler in the ring. There was no mention of a title of any kind, but later other sports writers would mention the loss of the John Olin lineage title. So, overall, they found this idiot with, uh, with deep pockets, worked him for every penny, because you know he paid for that two-week training camp. Oh, he yeah. paid for the, the train rides to get everybody in there. I'm sure it was like taking like like an old WWF legend out for lunch, where they eat five meals in one day, and then say, thanks for the meal, brother. Yeah. So, they, they, they probably took this guy for every fucking penny. When it came time to get the paydays, they didn't mind taking a pay cut because they've already gotten so much out of this. Lewis got two thousand, and Vladek got fourteen or fifteen hundred. So I mean, they still made a lot of money for that time, plus paid vacations in that city, every meal paid for, all on this fucking idiot's uh, you know account. And at the end of the road, he spent probably you know five thousand dollars and recouped nine hundred. That's showbiz, baby. <laughs> We should have some, like, Jeff Foxworthy type thing where it's like, you know you're a money mark if you spend more on one match than you made at the entire box office. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is a telltale sign of a true money mark. He paid each of those guys got more than the entire house drew. Double. And in one and a half times, that is tremendous. They're like, yeah, yeah, we'll do you the favor. We'll, give, we'll, take, we'll take the pay cut this time for you because you're such a good pal. Yeah. <laughs> So after this, the papers declared wrestling dead in San Francisco, and Newman would never promote wrestling again after losing thousands of dollars, showing that he at least was half fucking bright to not ever try this again. I wonder what the guy at the Oregonian's headline was who just dunked on him beforehand was after this went down. Headline. Told ya. Jack Curley was furious with the outcome and blamed Kieran's. Kearns was finished in wrestling and stuck to managing Jack Dempsey, who I've heard did all right in the boxing world, but it is typical Jack Curley that they fleeced this poor asshole for a fortune, but because there was $1,000 left on the table, he was pissed that he didn't get that too. Oh yeah, Curley gonna Curley, man. That is a true carny. Yeah, it's like... You know, they got Kearns to put this thing together through uh, Newman. And, and Curly's like, look, man, we were supposed to take him for everything. You let this guy off the hook out of pity, and that's your fault. <laughs> yeah, totally, dude. He's like, you didn't re-sweep up the popcorn off the floor of the tent and resell it to the marks? <laughs> What's wrong with you, man? You're fired. Yeah, so it's, it was just... It was just grift after grift after grift, <laughs> and Newman picking up the check. You know, Kearns, he left wrestling. He uh, made a goddamn, uh, you know, pretty good living, I'm sure, managing Dempsey. And Lewis was happy with the outcome of the trip because he got to spend time with Dr. Ada Morton. On June 21st, Lewis even had to go to court for deposition in a suit 
Ada's now ex-husband filed against her, seeking the return of a valuable property lost in the divorce, claiming fraud involving a certain wrestler. Lewis provided statements showing he was on the East Coast at this time, but hey, aside from a quick court appearance, he just got to spend a lot of time with his girlfriend getting paid, uh, getting it all covered by a money mark. And if that's not living, I don't know what is. And then when he got deposition in court, I bet his he's like, all right, this is my testimony. And then he cut the same promo about, to, about feeling sorry for your girl. That would be awesome. Ed Lewis and Vladik Zabisco, they continued their series and had yet another rematch on the 4th of July in Boston at Braves Field. Vladik got the first fall in just under an hour. During the second fall... Uh, Zabisco hurt his knee and elbow when thrown from the ring and was pinned with a half-Nelson turn at just under 25 minutes. Zabisco had to be carried to the backstage. He came out for the third fall, but it was stopped in 45 seconds. And a couple of things I want to talk about. You know it's the old-timey slow burn wrestling when it's like, oh, he was beaten in just 25 minutes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I, I guess we don't have the only Hippodrome Express, because how did he turn him with a half Nelson? Because I thought the Gracies just invented that. Oh, like, they did just do that. that. Yeah, there was a, a tweet recently where they they showed a, uh, a you know, Hajar Gracie is like doing a new video, and it's like, oh, how to how to control your opponent by with a uh, with wrist control and some cash wrestling uh, account said, good news, everyone, the Gracies invented the half Nelson. <laughs> yeah, it was incredible and extremely on point. But yeah, it's it's in addition to it being a good window into that old timey long burn entertainment, it's also so funny to see a guy like Zabisco, who in, at this point, how many stories have we told about him falling out of the ring and hitting his head, or being injured and not being able to come out for a third, to the point where you know out, after that tournament he was getting booed and called a, a faker and a loser. And still he's doing this goddamn thing while main eventing everywhere. It really does, again, show the power of the pre-internet, pre-television era where you can do the same dumb goddamn trick to avoid a real finish time and time and time again without it really costing you any bookings. And that is one of the many reasons why pro wrestling today will never relive the glory that it did back in the day when we could really fleece the marks man and after this uh after this weird stoppage because of a quote injury lewis was reawarded the olin title in front of one of the biggest sporting crowds seen in boston at that point so in addition to a weird finish and a win over a weird rival he's then awarded the quasi fake title that barely existed in the first place but Again, that's just a recurring thing in the, in the history of pro wrestling. The the titles that appear and disappear magically are created and magically destroyed. So now he is once again the Olin champion uh, versus the more direct lineage title that was passed from from Stetcher to Cutler. Of course he is. This is America, man. This is Fourth of July, the biggest show of the year, and this smells like. Oh, what does it smell like? It smells like a, a hippodrome. So we now have a weird title that doesn't really exist around his waist if the belt actually was a thing. Uh, his rivalry with Zabisco is maybe starting to fade a little bit. He is picking up steam as kind of the premier catch wrestler, both as a shooter and a worker in the country. Billy Sandow is, you know, a comparison I just thought of was Sandow. He's very much like a Don King if Don King were honest with Mike Tyson. Okay, yeah. yeah. Like, like, like Don King, a man who could just have the charisma to spin bullshit on top of bullshit on top of bullshit, being the perfect, you know, press agent and, uh, and, and, and speech giver as manager. But King fleeced people out of money left and right. Meanwhile, Sandow was honest with the people in his circle. The rest of the world, absolutely not. But he and Lewis, they were they were true to each other, which is what you have to do. It's like the uh, the the Dylan song, you know, to be a thief you must be honest. Uh, so they are being primed for being the biggest wrestling. I almost want to say almost said faction, but it's just a manager and a wrestler. But unfortunately, tragedy and horror on a worldwide scale was breaking out as World War One engulfed Europe and America was entering the war, which was going to affect the career of wrestlers at every level. And that's where we're going to pick up next time. We're going to pick up next time talking about the impact of World War One on the wrestling industry, how that affected men like Stetcher, men like Lewis, men like Pesek, 
we talked a little bit about in the Pesic episode, but this had a huge impact on the wrestling business as it did all businesses. Some of it good, mostly bad, but that's a conversation for next time. This has been amazing, man, and what a what a proper you know tease and cliffhanger for next time. Well done, old chap, uh, dude. Sandow and Lewis, that's like an all time tandem now, right? Oh, they 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 were the the standard to which all others are measured. Because there, there had never been a manager-wrestler combo like that. That didn't exist. Now it's standard. Now you have yeah. you know, the, the, the Jimmy Hart's with the Honky Talk Man. You have the you know, Paul Heyman with, you know, with Brock Lesnar. That is now a standard relationship, but this is the first time it really made the national scene. Yeah, and it, it, it changed the game. It established many things that we consider the norm in the game today and it was just it is brilliant to get to sit here and study at the feet of the masters these super super vicious carny fucks that are just fleecing everybody left and right and you see the difference the difference between curly and sandow one kills every man on his crew one is there to feed every man on his crew. And that's the difference between being the goat and being a jackass. And it also sets up a lot of conflict down the road, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Uh, for now, thanks for listening. Thanks for being on this journey with us. Uh, if you listened and wondered what the hell we're talking about half the time and you haven't listened to old episodes, you know, start with the, the Zabisco episode. We're really laying the groundwork starting there for this big story we've been telling for the last couple of months. Make sure you you like us on Facebook. Uh, you know, follow us on on Instagram and Twitter. I found lots of fun articles and photos to be posting about all this. And we'll be back very soon with the next part of this story. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossard. We'll talk to you next time. Yes, Hippodrome Express out. Cut print martini. Beep beep.